Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we talk about the use of military air and spacecraft from their earliest days up to today and into the future. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I am your co-host, Brian Lassley. All right. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about technology and air power, which uh, specifically this relationship between person and machine like in the cockpit and outside of it. And of course, this is of increasing concern. You know, the Air Force, uh, both in the U.S. and around the world, is becoming more and more automated, working more and more technology uh, into how it operates on a day to day basis. Some folks might even say there's been some sort of revolution in how technology is used in uh, the defense world and with air power specifically as of the 90s and, and beyond. So we're going to dive into some of that today, uh, talking about how the Air Force has used automation, uh, combining piloted systems with unmanned aircraft in various ways uh, throughout its history, and thinking about what that might mean for the future. So today we're joined by Timothy Schultz. He's the current Associate Dean of Academics for Electives and Research at the Navy War College, and also former Dean of the U.S. Air Force's School of Advanced Air and Space Studies an Air Force colonel and former U-2 pilot, and author of The Problem with Pilots, How Physicians, Engineers, and Air Power Enthusiasts Redefined Flight, recently out from Johns Hopkins University Press. Tim, thanks for being here. It is wonderful to be with you, Mike and Brian. All right, so let's dive right in. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, this book? It's got an interesting title, in insinuating that pilots are somehow a problem uh, to be solved. Can you get into kind of the current book and what it's about and, and why you think it's important? Sure. Is so as a pilot, I was kind of surprised to learn that pilots like me, uh, all pilots really were, in a sense, the biggest problem in aviation. Our cognitive and physical and physiological limitations sort of govern and limit the potential of the machine. And the entire history of aviation has been a story of how to overcome those human limits. And it has required those the roles of pilots and airmen to sort of be recast and reshaped if, if not transformed and as a historian i was intrigued of well, how did that happen and and this book uh, is is sort of the the tale of how that happens and i try to connect it to modern times why what does what does this mean for us now why is this important to the modern aviators, the modern air power institution, uh, to technologists and to the general public as well, because you know this aviation isn't the only realm where automation is playing an increasing role. Awesome. Uh, I was shocked uh, to see how far back you've taken this, because we think of technology and automation as being kind of relatively new things uh, in terms of the history of air power. But you have a quote about Hap Arnold talking about unmanned airplanes as early as, I think, 1947. The beginnings of your book go way back before even then. Can you talk about some of the origins of, of kind of dealing with the problem of pilots and how that evolves, uh, you know, in the early part of the 20th century? Absolutely. There And there is a lot of Hap Arnold in this book. In 1945, he's saying, <laughs> in the future, we're going to have uh, bombers uh, that are unmanned. And he wasn't referring to ICBMs. Those weren't a thing yet. He's referring to unmanned, big, heavy bombers piloted by uh, a mothership, you know, 15 miles away or something like that. So he was a fairly forward thinking guy. And stepping back a little bit in 1937, when he gained a bigger role in the, uh, in the Army Air Corps, eventually the Army Air Forces, he was responding to a lot of accidents that were happening, um, you know, with his military pilots. 
And he said, we need to relegate the human flyer and elevate the mechanical flyer, elevate the machine to rely more on automation. And that went back to something that he observed in way back in 1925, where he was a young pilot back then, an early uh, army aviator. And he, he recognized, hey, aircraft are just increasing rapidly in their capability, their, their speed, their altitude, their duration. And that's going to pose a major problem for human limits. He was aware that that had already been seen in the, in the Great War, the First World War. But he actually was writing, thinking and writing about this in the mid-1920s already. So he was a, a, a forward-thinking guy, even as a younger person. And there were things going on in the First World War in terms of pilots getting hypoxic. Um, you know, they would fight above 18,000 feet occasionally, and and that would pose a problem. Um, the pilots would get disoriented. They realized that it was difficult to fly at night or in the fog or in the weather. They didn't know why. They thought it was due to inexperience. It took years to realize it was because of human physiology and your inability to stay oriented at night or in the weather, if you can't see the horizon. Um, but that, that, that comes a little bit later in the story. You know, one of the things, uh, I found interesting and Mike kind of touched on it here is what is technology. And so I think we tend to kind of narrowly define technology as things, the computers we're talking on, the phones we all have in our pockets right. or in, in a modern parlance, an F 22, a YouTube, an SR 71, uh, I, you know, I think we tend to think of technology as something we can see or hold. Uh, and I, I saw that you quoted uh, Thomas Hughes, one of my favorite historians yeah. uh, in the book. So how do you define technology or how do you think we should think of technology? I uh, We would debate this a lot in graduate school, how you define technology. And like many things, it is difficult to define. It's slippery. I kind of take an old school approach that Technology is the the human manipulation of the environment to achieve an end that can take so many different forms. You, you know, not just a a physical artifact like a like an engine or, or an aircraft, but it also starts to become a a a means of doing something, a way of doing things, almost a, a doctrinal approach, um, an operator's perspective that has a technological aspect as well. It's helping you control the environment to achieve some sort of end. So I can't give you a definitive technology or definition of technology. Uh, I will ha be happy to when all historians agree on one <laughs> that may be uh, sometime coming. Yeah, I don't know if we could ever fully do that. <laughs> um, yes. One of the things that yeah. attracts me to the history of technology is the way that technology and cultures interact, which uh, kind of you were just getting at uh, there a little bit. And in your book, you tell the story about how pilots learn to become uh, instrument proficient and fly by instrument only uh, and right. kind of closing off their own senses, which seemed to be a, a cultural hurdle to overcome. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that process. Sure. Yeah. Uh, pilots had to develop what was later described as an instrument consciousness or, or a new way of, of thinking or a new way of being inside the aircraft so they could operate it correctly. For several years, pilots didn't connect this poor record of lying in at night or in the weather, you know, the, the, these mishaps occurring, these, these entrances into these, these death spirals. 
they didn't realize what was going on. And for some pilots, many claim that, well, when I fly into the weather, my instruments start to go haywire. Somehow the fog or the clouds are affecting these instruments and the compass starts to spin and, and uh, things start to malfunction. But in reality, it was the pilots entering uh, some sort of unknown spiral. They didn't realize that they had become spatially disoriented. And it wasn't until about 1925, 1926, where a flight surgeon and a very experienced pilot, they collaborated together and they were experimenting with this, this thing called a barony chair. A barony chair spins around and it's used in even now yeah, in pilot training to, to show pilots how easily they can be disoriented. So if you put on a blindfold and spin around in a chair, pretty soon you're going to get spatially disoriented and dizzy. And they realized this, this, especially this flight surgeon, he realized pilots were becoming spatially disoriented, losing their way in the weather, oftentimes fatally, because it was a normal human physiological reaction. It wasn't because they were poor pilots or inexperienced pilots. It was because they were normal pilots. And once those scales dropped from the eyes and, and this was realized, they, they tested this in the airborne environment. And they were able to demonstrate that you must rely on an attitude indicator and a turn and slip indicator and basic instruments that kind of tell you where the aircraft is in relationship to the Earth's horizon. If you trust those instruments, if you develop that instrument consciousness, you can do so many more things with this machine. And it was resisted for a while, for a time, by current pilots, experienced pilots. They thought instruments were a crutch. They didn't learn how to fly in instruments. Therefore, they thought that these were for younger, more novice pilots until we had a lot of uh, airmail crashes and until the Army Air Corps mandated that you must get checked out in instruments in order to fly our aircraft. And it became a matter of uh, of a professional requirement and a professional pride to be a good instrument pilot. So, but it took a while because it was something that was against the status quo and humans resist change, especially when you are confident in what you are doing. There's some swagger there, uh, professional pride. And now you have maybe non-pilots, you know, physicians, engineers telling you, no, you have to completely change the way you operate this aircraft, the way you fly. You must think differently. It takes a while for the get, that to get traction. I think it's interesting that you brought up uh, the airmail fiascos. One, I was worried about how I was going to integrate Larry Cuter into this interview. Uh, so thanks for, for, for <laughs> bringing that up. But in, in, all, in all seriousness, you talk about you know kind of the relationship between the pilots and the instruments. But this is a not just a 20s or 30s problem. And it's not even just a now problem. This is a relationship that has continued throughout the development of what we would say is modern air power, right? Indeed. Um, it's it's a matter of trust and, and uh, relinquishing some of your home, own human agency uh, over to an instrumented form of flight or an automated form of flight. And that's a, that's a common thing that pilots need to learn how to do in order to be effective. And now we see that institutionally where we are placing more trust in types of aircraft that have no pilots at all. And there's a cultural resistance to that as well, even though it can achieve effects that piloted aircraft cannot. So there's, there's a bit of a, of a parallel there. 
uh, as well. I, I'll, I'll, one uh, quick note, um, uh, in my research, I happened upon an instrument flight manual from the Second World War, and it's this really basic, how to, why you have to fly with your instruments and why you have to trust them. And it, it told these pilots that when you feel yourself becoming disoriented, you just have to literally laugh at yourself and, and laugh it off and trust your instruments and, and kind of realize, well, there I go again. I'm getting disoriented. That's a normal reaction. I just need to trust my instruments and not myself. And that's to get a 22-year-old male, aggressive, confident young man to do that. It takes a lot of training and indoctrination. That's really funny. Um, speaking of this connection between like the the cultural aspects of the pilots and how they're interacting with the technology, you use the word cybernetic a lot uh, in the book. Yeah, and you know, I think for most of us, when we first see that term, we're thinking about you know Arnold Schwarzenegger as the Terminator or something like that, or RoboCop, which is probably not what you mean. Uh, can you maybe unpack uh, what you mean by cybernetic and how that defines this uh, pilot cockpit relationship? Absolutely. And, and uh, I don't mean cyborg and, and <laughs> like a, a lot of historians do, I try to inoculate myself from certain things in the footnotes. Yeah. So in the footnote, I say, I am not talking about Schwarzenegger Terminator, like uh, cyborgs. Mm-hmm. That's something really different. What I'm talking about is this notion of cybernetics. It was a term coined by a guy named Norbert Wiener in 1947 uh, he's not a real commonly known name, but he was one of the three major titans of information theory in the mid 20th century, right up there with Alan Turing and John von Neumann. Uh, those three really sort of us, ushered in this, this this tipping point in the middle of the 20th century that bought us the modern information age. And Norbert Wiener coined this term cybernetics. It's Greek from steersman or governor about how information feedback loops can exert control of a system. And that's something simple like a thermostat or something more complex like a a Tesla, Uh, you know, that that maintains, that doesn't uh, depart from a lane and maintains a certain distance from the car ahead of it. That those information feedback loops are a form of cybernetics. As it turns out in my research, it became apparent that aviators, military and commercial aviators were developing and practicing cybernetics before cybernetics was cool, before cybernetics was a thing, before the the term was even coined. uh, And they were helping sort of develop this this human-machine relationship. You might also look at it like as an OODA loop, Hmm. you know, observe, orient, decide, and act. Except now you have machines doing the observing and the orienting and to a degree, the deciding and the acting, or maybe it's a combination of humans and machines where humans maybe are in the machine are in the loop anymore. Maybe they're on the loop, managing the loop, or maybe they're outside of the loop, but that is all this notion of control and feedback theory that came about in the in the mid 1940s, and it's fundamental to the development of of the use of information. So I was wondering if I should use this term and develop it, and I thought, yeah, this is it, it's a historic term. It's an important term, and it permeates uh, a lot of technological development in the in the 20th century, and, and it, it manifests itself in many ways, certainly in aviation. Well, I definitely appreciate you working a John Boyd reference in. 
as much as possible. All roads lead back to the OODA loop, right? <laughs> That's right. I was I was seriously concerned we weren't going to get to a John Boyd reference in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, check mark for this one. Okay. Yes. Um, you mentioned I was going to get back to you, you were talking about you know if Hap Arnold is talking about this kind of automated uh, or pilotless aircraft as early as the forties. Um, I mean, we do have drones and stuff today, uh, but speaking to you talk about cultural resistance to some of these ideas, why do you think we haven't seen an even larger force of either remote piloted or even autonomously piloted types of aircraft? If, if the idea goes back that far. Yeah. I I think that's a a fundamental question because the, the senior army air forces leadership, many of them were, were seeking ways to project power through the air and to basically gain independence for the Air Force. There was an institutional imperative to show the utility of air power. And if necessary, they would use pilots. But if when necessary, they wouldn't use pilots. Uh, they would develop unmanned aircraft, which they did in the Second World War to a limited degree. This 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 project called Project Aphrodite, which used B-17s and B-24s, uh, highly experimental, didn't have a lot of operational efficacy, um, but it, it kind of demonstrated the concept that this something like this could be done. Shortly after the war, it was either 1946 or 1947, a uh, transport plane uh, flew from Newfoundland to the United Kingdom and the controls weren't touched by a human at all. It had a human, it had a crew, an air crew on board, but from brake release uh, on takeoff until it landed, they just sat there with their hands in their laps and they never touched anything. It was entirely roboticized flight. Uh, and it was a demonstration of a concept. Now I'm thinking, well, how come we don't see much more of this in later in the forties and the fifties and the sixties? I think it involves a, a lot of different things. One is development of other technologies of projecting power, and namely uh, cruise missiles like uh, the SNARK, which wasn't really very successful, but other cruise missiles, which came in later decades, and of course, uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles with uh, reasonably uh, uh, with reasonable and ever-increasing accuracy. Those sort of started to fill that need of the ability to project strategic air power and that, of course, was in an unmanned realm. So it took a little emphasis off of, of depiloting a, a traditional aircraft. Uh, and also, the, the computing technology was just wasn't there. It was too it was too brittle. It was too inefficient. It was too primitive. And we don't really see a significant increase in that until we get better computational power in later decades. And then there's also the cultural element. Um, you, you know, you have, uh, it's a piloted air force and there's not much of an appetite to develop unpiloted air, aircraft. If the mission is being readily accomplished by piloted aircraft, we see a need for piloted aircraft. However, in the uh, late nineties and the early two thousands, uh, we see the value of predator in the Balkans and certainly uh, over Iraq, and then uh, later over over Afghanistan and Pakistan and Syria, and the Air Force starting to take a more serious look and in an effort to develop these unmanned systems, still a lot of resistance to it. 
a lot of resistance among uh, uh, not everyone, but many in the Air Combat Command because they see this as trespassing on their traditional realm. Uh, much more to the story there. This might be a little bit of a rabbit trail, but you mentioned uh, Project Aphrodite. Am I remembering right that that's the uh, mission that uh, John F. Kennedy's brother was killed on? Yes, indeed. In uh, I think it was August of 1944, um, he famously wrote a letter to, uh, to his younger brother, uh, uh, JFK, uh, the future president, saying, hey, don't worry, I'm not doing anything uh, risky. I'm not... Uh, risking my neck in some crazy venture. I have no plans to get married. He was trying to reassure his family. And then two days later, he's in a, a, he's a naval officer, naval, uh, naval pilot. He's in a B-24 that's being, has been converted to an unmanned aircraft, but his job along with one other crew member is to take it off, level it off at cruising altitude, get it all trimmed up, go back and arm the bomb and then while this is happening, control is given to the mothership that is piloting this baby, uh, B-24, this, this orphan, as they call it, uh, this unmanned orphan. So the mothership is waiting for Kennedy and his fellow crewmen to parachute out. And all of a sudden, the B-24 that Kennedy is still in explodes, massive explosion. It's carrying tens of thousands of pounds of explosives. And the bodies are never found. And it's just one of those really stark examples of how risky this was, how experimental it was, and how also, Alec, it's a reminder to me that history turns on contingent events. You know, if if this hadn't happened, would we have had the JFK as a future president? You know, things of that nature. And it just, uh, it gets to another notion that I like to emphasize in the book, Technology is not deterministic. The future is not written. It's not determined. Technology is not evolving to a certain predestined form. That's technological determinism. And I think that is a a false belief. It's shaped by human preferences. It's shaped by contingency. It's shaped by the strategic environment. Uh, It has trends and momentum. That's another Thomas Hughes Uh, notion, a a very well-known historian of technology, talks about how technologies gain momentum. And we see this in terms of piloted aircraft having momentum, but now we see unpiloted aircraft gaining more momentum. But it's still all a result of human agency. It's not something where uh, humans do not have control. They may not be in in the aircraft in all cases now, but they still exert control. I'm really glad you mentioned that just because, you know, we talk about technology just casually as if it does have this agency. And we talk about, well, technology is advancing this way or that way. But, uh, you know, historians of technology really emphasize that, uh, you know, it's not that technology has this this power or is making its own decisions. It's it's always a product of a human culture or human decisions. Um, And I think your book does a really good job of showing how that applies to to aircraft. Yeah, good. Thank you. I, I um, lately I, I hear more about human in the loop, human on the loop, human out of the loop, and I'm I'm trying to remind people and remind my students that think of it a little differently. You're limiting your yourself with that metaphor because humans are the ones who make the loop in the first place. Right. Humans, humans write the algorithms. Humans write the doctrine, create the doctrine, humans fund the programs, humans hire and fire people involved in these programs. It's human through and through. It's just a matter of where we decide to make 
uh, humans, uh, the deciders, where we put that human agency and where we choose to automate to make the system more effective. Uh, this might be a little too speculative, so you don't have to answer this, but uh, go ahead. Uh, speaking of the, the Kennedy tragedy and some of the safety issues associated with putting pilots in dangerous situations, that tends to be one of the main arguments for going in more of a pilotless direction or an automated direction right. uh, with having remote controlled craft or automated craft. Do you think that the Air Force should pursue more of that and get more pilots out of the air? Or what do you think the approach should be moving forward? A lot of different thoughts on that. I, I <laughs> personally don't think Brian or Mike or Tim is going to get into an unmanned aircraft to fly from point A to point B. We might get into a driverless car. There's much progress that needs to happen before either one of us puts our pink bodies in an, in an unmanned aircraft. Um, the technology is is not there yet. However, the Air Force just announced it is interested in developing a, an unmanned uh, recovery vehicle that would, would fly in and recover a downed airman. Uh, and that, that makes sense to a degree. Something, And they also wanted to have some uh, stealth characteristics or some ability to evade uh, air defenses and enough of a, a lift capability and all these other capabilities, but they want it to be unmanned. And I, they just announced, the Air Force just announced its interest in that a couple of days ago, we see sort of this phenomenon of the changing role of the human in the F-35. The pilot is still in the aircraft, but the pilot does things diff so much differently than what you would expect of a traditional fighter pilot. If you're in a dogfight in an F-35, the technology is not being used as planned. An F-35 is designed to see and kill its adversary dozens, scores of miles away. Far, long before they are visible by the naked eye. Uh, it's done by machine, by sensors, and the pilot plays a role. The pilot may decide, may, may be the decider in terms of the trigger puller, but all of that information is being filtered through the pilot via sensors and algorithms. So essentially, in some respects, it is unmanned. In, in the, in, if you compare it to the traditional role of the fighter pilot, or the person, the man or woman in the aircraft, they play a different role now. They're system managers. They're overseers. They, they can maybe exert a different type of control and creativity than you would traditionally expect. Um, there's a, an F-35 test pilot remark that he sees the world through the jet's eyeballs, not through the human eyeball. And he sees a synthetic version of the world. And that's just a closer step to removing pilots altogether from some missions. Heresy among the fighter pilot community. But if they examine what they really do and how they really fight in peer-to-peer, air-to-air engagements, how their system is designed to prevail, their role is entirely different than the sort of mythical idea of what we think a fighter pilot does. And I, I think this is a a point that's worth reemphasizing here because Mike and I have actually had several conversations where we see articles that say, what would win in a dogfight, a F-35 or a MiG-29, or, you know, pick your aircraft and, and insert it here. And you mentioned it, and it's worth repeating that if some of the, the fifth generation aircraft we're using today finds themselves in a turning engagement with an enemy fighter 
something has already gone heinously wrong. Indeed, that is not uh, how we intend to employ that weapon system. The Air Force, the Navy, they still want that capability uh, in case that happens. War is unpredictable and you want to retain that ability. And that's why pilots, those pilots still practice those capabilities. But it's really not going to dominate, dominate the modern fight. I wanted to talk a little bit about methodology and, and research and stuff. When you're putting this book together or, or whether it's this project or something like it, you know, where do you start? What's your research project like? What kind of sources are you looking at? And uh, how does that all come together? I think that probably the experience is different from historian to historian, individual to individual, but there are, there are best practices. Uh, one of the first ones is just read widely and read voraciously. Get out of your narrow lane, uh, see what else has been written on your topic uh, in tangential and related topics. Um, that's probably the first thing you need to do. And that also involves talking with more senior historians of different ilks. Uh, it was helpful for me to talk to social historians and historians who deal more with with uh, culture or historians of science, not just historians of technology or military historians and get uh, different uh, gain familiar, familiarity with different ideas and theories. Uh, a friend of mine named uh, uh, Mel Daly, his PhD is from uh, Chapel Hill. Good guy, uh, wrote a really good book. Um, I love his line because he says, for historians, uh, theory is like underwear. We use it, but we don't let we don't show it off very much. We don't really let you see it. Uh, I think that that was true in my experience. I found a a lot of value in looking at different theories of scientific change and technological change and military innovation. There were fantastic books written out there about that. And to gain more familiarity with those, it, it helped me develop sort of a, an approach to all of this data that I was getting at archives and how to, how to sift through it and interpret it. And I'm talking about uh, theorists like um, Thomas Kuhn, who wrote The Structure of Scientific Revolutions and how... Um, how paradigms change, how they shift uh, after when a, an anomaly is discovered. Um, we mentioned a couple of times um, you know, Thomas Hughes and this notion of technological momentum. And he has an idea of a reverse salient where uh, a technology is advancing and then it's held up in its advance. It runs into a reverse salient. Uh, it became apparent to me the pilot, the humans in the aircraft were a reverse salient to the, to the, increasing ability of technology. They were limiting the ability of aircraft to fly higher or be more maneuverable or fly longer. And so people, non-pilots like physicians, flight surgeons, and engineers had to work to overcome that reverse salient. And I realized, oh, well, other historians have, have sort of theorized about this and here it is in action. Um, there are military historians uh, out there or historians who've talked about military change, uh, Barry Posen and Stephen Rosen about how innovation does and doesn't work in the military. So from a methodological approach, it was very helpful to me to familiarize myself uh, with different theories of technological change and military innovation and scientific change. And that kind of gave me a substrate to, to work with. And then dive into the archives, uh, sift through them, 
uh, researched widely. I was uh, fortunate to be able to go to the National Archives and the uh, the Air Force Museum and the Special Collections Branch at the US, U.S. Air Force Academy, which is a great uh, locus of information, uh, the History Office at Air Force Material Command, the uh, Air Force Historical Research Agency, and different places like that. Um, because you, you you have to you have to research widely uh, as a one of my uh, senior mentors said historians uh, sift through the detritus of the past to try to find usable information and I, I like that approach you have to sift through the detritus of the past and make sense of it you know it's interesting so we we brought up uh, Thomas Hughes a couple times yeah. uh, you mentioned Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions uh, and then you mentioned your mentor so I think it's worth asking you know uh, other than those what previous work and and other historians were influential to you I um I was influenced a lot by um, Tammy Davis Biddle wrote rhetoric and reality uh, a wonderful book about uh, um, World War II strategic air power a uh, lot of insights into uh, not just the technology but the leadership the institutional imperative the strategic context and a wonderful story of how uh, priorities shift and priorities change. And we see that with air power enthusiasts regarding the, the development of aviation technology, their priorities change and, and the technology changes and other developments in technology in turn change the priorities and ideas of those air power enthusiasts. It's a two-way street. Um, I have been heavily influenced by a historian of technology named Dave Mendel, David Mendel. He wrote a, um, a book called Between Human and Machine, Feedback, Control, and Computing Before Cybernetics. We already talked about how we see that in the development of aviation. He helped uh, explore a lot of that territory as well. He more recently wrote a wonderful book called Our, our Robots, Ourselves, describing our relationship with, with robots and, and automation. And he's a, he's a thought leader in that field. So I would recommend David Mendel to people who are interested in the Peter Singer. Right, wired for war, uh, really good uh, context and ideas about modern aviation, and especially as it becomes increasingly unmanned. So those are those are some authors I would uh, I would recommend to folks. Tim, this has been great. Uh, thanks so much for for being on the first episode of Balloons to Drones uh, podcast. Where can we find more of you online or in print? Uh, I am on uh, Twitter uh, at Probs with Pilots. And the, the book is out there, um, you know, and the, the usual sources, you know, Amazon and Johns Hopkins University Press. Uh, I hope to see my fellow historians at various conferences like the Society for Military History. Um, and I'm uh, reachable by uh, at the Naval War College as well. Fantastic. Uh, Brian, where can we find more of you online? You can find me on Twitter and I am just at Brian Lastly. Uh, and both of my books are available right now. Uh, and since we mentioned the strategy bridge, I will go ahead and plug uh, my most recent chapter with those guys and the redefining the modern military. Yes. Good book. All right. I'm Mike Hankins. You can find me on Twitter at Hankenstein. That's with a T-I-E-N. And of course, we're all online at balloons to drones.com. 
Our theme music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook under digitalfishmedia.org. If you'd like to send us an email, please visit balloonsadrones.com slash contact. And if you'd like to submit an article to us for publication, you can do that at balloonsadrones.com slash submissions. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.